the word of Christ from the Gospel of John. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. 
Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen straps, or stri- strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Now many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in Jesus. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for these passages that are all too familiar to us. We thank you that they remind us of times that we have read them before. And Lord, we pray that in these moments together that you would speak to us afresh and anew through this passage. Lord, we pray that you would bless the reading of your holy word to our hearts and our lives, that we would be transformed by it. Holy Spirit, would you please move among us? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Sometimes the wilderness is filled with sorrow and grief. Life itself is filled with sorrow and grief. Sometimes it seems that life itself is nothing but a wilderness. You find yourself just trying to make it through, just trying to survive, coping in a variety of ways. We all cope in a variety of ways. It's easy to look at somebody else's coping and look down upon it and miss your own way of coping because you take it for granted. But we all find ourselves from time to time coping with life because life is in many ways a wilderness. You move about from disappointment to disappointment, from frustration to frustration. You go from this desperation to that desperation. Maybe it's a a different sort of desperation. Maybe you can look back at your life 10 years ago and say, well, I wasn't, I'm not now what I was then, but you're still dealing with some of the same frustrations, some of the same desperations, maybe just in different contexts as you've gotten older. You cry out for help and help seems to never quite show up quite when it's needed. You ever been there? It's strange that the text tells us that because Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed away for a couple more days. Did you catch that? It was right there. I think it was verses 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, 
he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Does that strike you as odd? It should. Because he loved them, he kept his distance. I can't, um, I can't even begin to give you some simple explanation about why God allows terrible things to happen to you. And for every last one of us, we've experienced some terrible things. Even the youngest of us, we've experienced some things that we would think of as terrible in our young lives. But it's obvious that for whatever reasons God does allow those things to happen, He does allow them to happen. There are many times in life, perhaps most times in life, where He does not just step in and intervene and shut it all down to save you from the pain and the sorrow and the grief and the discomfort and the frustration and the desperation. I say I can't even begin to give you some simple explanation because simple explanations always just fall short. They fall flat in life. Yes, we live in a fallen world. That's obvious. I forget who it was who said the most obvious Christian doctrine is original sin. We see it all around us. Yes, we live in a fallen world, a world wrecked by sin and pain and loss and death. But that explanation alone does not satisfy us when we find ourselves in the wilderness filled with sorrow and grief. Yes, we live in a world filled with people with real and free agency. People who often do terrible things and cause unspeakable harm to others. But even, even still, fallen world filled with fallen people, that still does not assuage our pain when we find ourselves filled with pain, racked with pain. And we could say yes to so much more. So many more things that we know to be true about life and why it is filled with pain and sorrow, but that still doesn't help, does it? But while such observations are helpful, perhaps in some limited way, they are in the end unsatisfying when we find ourselves in the ringer of the wilderness, crying out to Jesus, Lord, if you had only showed up, this wouldn't have happened. If you can't hear Martha's and Mary's words in your own voice, I think you're missing the text. Lord, if you had only showed up, this wouldn't have happened. And perhaps it's that cry of desperation that is just it. Such is not only the cry of desperation, it's also the lament of abject dependence. 
Such are the words of longing. If you had only been here. It sounds almost like the psalmist. From time to time, in many psalms, you hear the psalmist crying out, How long, O Lord? Where are you? Why have you not shown up and just smitten our enemies, drive them away, put the world back together? Lord, if you had only showed up, this wouldn't have happened. That cry of desperation raises the question, what do you want? You see, Mary and Martha modeled so much for us in their honest vulnerability. They wanted nothing more than Jesus' presence. If you had been here, our brother would not have died. They want his presence because in his presence is the power of God. In his presence is the power of God to raise the dead. We've lost the art in our world of being present to one another. And I say it's an art because it is a fine art. Sometimes your presence can be a bit too pushy, a bit too forward, a, a, bit, um, a bit unnecessary, you know. But sometimes your presence is desperately needed. But we've lost the art of being present to one another. And this is a great loss for the world. Typically, when one of us is going through the ringer, what do we do? You know exactly what we do. You see it every day as you scroll through your news feed. If you don't know what a news feed is, then you're of great benefit. You have a great benefit not knowing what a news feed is. But every day when you scroll through it, you see what we do. What we do is we post a status update on Facebook about how miserable life is, about how terrible things have turned out, about what's wrong. And what then happens? Well, you'll probably get more reactions in the forms of likes or cares or loves or sads or angry or whatever the reaction might be. You'll probably get more of those than comments. But in the comments, you'll find, hey, I'm praying for you. And not only that, which is good. Prayer is good. Prayer is wonderful. Prayer is work. But you'll find a few people comment saying that they're there for you. Hey, I'm here for you, sister. Hey, brother, I'm here for you. Except they aren't there. They're over there. On the other side of that digital mediated relationship. 
You know, sometimes when we're desperate for Jesus to show up, we also desperately need his people to be there with us in it. Literally, physically, grieving with us, sorrowing with us, crying out with us, waiting with us. Job's friends were pretty miserable, but they at least showed up, which was a good thing. The problem was when they started running their mouths and trying to give simple answers. Well, Job, it's pretty clear you've done something wrong. The text tells us that as Jesus is keeping his distance for a couple of more days, a whole group of people from the community and the surrounding communities have gathered around Mary and Martha. And it's so easy to get to a text like this and kind of explain away things and dismiss things. And, you know, Jesus wept not because, you know, he was hurting and not because he cared deeply for Lazarus and was sad at the human predicament. No, he wept because they just didn't understand. He wept because they were foolish. I, I, I heard um, years ago, probably 18 years or so ago, um, a sermon preached on this passage and the pastor said, um, the pastor said, because of the fact that the text tells you the Jews said, oh, see how he loved them. That ought to be a clue to you to understand that it was not because of that that Jesus wept. Because they were always wrong. They didn't understand. It's easy to, to look at the group of people that have gathered around Mary and Martha and are grieving and sorrowing with them and think, oh, those people, what good is their presence being there? They've got nothing good to say. They've got nothing correct to say. And miss the fact that while these two sisters are waiting for Jesus to show up, they have some people that have created community around them and with them. Again, literally, physically. But regrettably, we live in a world where this is not very common. In fact, we live in a world where, if we're not careful, we find ourselves looking down on cultures where, there, where this is actually a daily occurrence. Cultures that are not like ours. Cultures that are not as affluent as ours. Cultures that are not as independent as ours. Cultures in which all you really have to get you through pain and suffering as other people who are also all too familiar with their own pain and suffering. Where people spend lots of time together grieving and mourning and comforting one another. Just getting through life literally, physically together. Jesus tells His disciples, I'm glad for your sakes 
that I've not been there. Lazarus being raised from the dead brings glory to God and it precipitates the glory of Christ in John's gospel. Jesus tells the disciples very frankly, it is for the glory of God. The Father is going to be honored by what is about to transpire. Painful as the moment is, truly terrible as the moment is. I can't, yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've been to Christian funerals where death is basically just kind of dismissed as a non-thing. Where it's not stared down as truly terrible as it really is. And yet the promise of resurrection being proudly and boldly proclaimed over it. Jesus says it is for the glory of God. God is going to be honored in what is about to happen. But he also says, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Which is an interesting, an interesting idea in John's gospel in particular. Because Jesus so intimately ties together his glory with the cross. In fact, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus says, it is time for me to be glorified. And he serves, and he is arrested, and he is beaten, and he is crucified. The text ends by telling us that many of those who were there believed. Many of those Jews who had gathered around Mary and Martha had built, had built community around them and with them. Many of them believed but if you read on into verse 46 and following, you also read that there were yet others who went and told the Pharisees, look at what just happened. This becomes the precipitating event toward the cross. The die is cast. The first domino is knocked over. There's no going back beyond the raising of Lazarus. When Martha has run out to Jesus outside the town, he declares to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, I don't know about you, but that's one of those I am statements that causes me to pause and scratch my head and wonder what all is packed into that claim that Jesus makes. Some of the others are pretty obvious. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. But I am the resurrection and the life. There's so much there and so much that really is a mystery to us there. It's obvious that he's claiming that 
resurrection is rooted and grounded in him. Apart from Jesus, there is no resurrection. There will be no resurrection apart from him. But Paul tells us that Jesus is also the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. He is the beginning of so much more that is to come. Because Jesus was resurrected from the dead, all of humanity will one day be resurrected from the dead. And the interesting thing is that that is a belief, the second part of that belief at least, that is a belief that all of the Pharisees in Jesus' time understood and believed. That at the end of time, there would be a great resurrection of the dead where all who have died, good and bad, righteous and unrighteous, that they would all be resurrected, that their bodies would be raised back up, and that they would then face judgment. But no one expected that in the middle of history that one man 